Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. No doubt, a staple skill of any aspiring journalist is interviewing, but knowing what questions to ask and when to ask them is only one half of the skill set. In fact, that will only get you so far without the other crucial and often understated component of interviewing, listening. As our guest today tells us, your best sound bites are normally prompted by your follow-up questions. Arguably, nowhere is this more important than in the broadcast interview, where you are often dealing with an unfolding situation or a sensitive story. Here to show us the ropes of the broadcast interview today is Jen Maxfield, an Emmy award-winning broadcast journalist and anchor with more than 20 years of industry experience, working for various US stations including NBC New York, Eyewitness News and WIXT. She has made her name specialising in on-the-ground and live local journalism. She's an author and released her book More After the Break this month, where she looks back at 10 of her most memorable news stories. She also teaches broadcast journalism as an adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University in New York. She'll be sharing with us her insider tips that she's built up throughout her career on how to master the art of a broadcast interview. Don't go anywhere. Jen, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Would you share a little known fact about yourself with our audience, please? I did have a rather niche sport that I did in high school. And I actually held the school record for a quarter century in this sport, the high jump. It's a track and field event. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it turned out that I I was pretty good at the high jump in high school. And so... I haven't tried it in many years, but that was a, a little known skill that I had. What, what was what was your record? How high? Five feet, three inches. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in meters. I have to convert it. it it's, it's high. Wow. Um, and when, when was it broken? When was the record broken? Last year. Last year. And actually, one of the young women's uh, moms reached out to me and said, my daughter just broke your record. And, and by the way, I set the record when I was 18 years old and I'm 45 now. So I, it was wonderful. I got to actually go to the track and congratulate the young woman who broke the record, who's since broken it by many more inches and, and her record will probably stand forever. It's, it's a cliche question, but how does it feel to have someone break your record? It's, it's bittersweet. I, I suppose, I don't know, I've never been in that situation, but how does it feel? Oh no, I, I, it was just sweet. I mean, records are made to be broken. Love it. Love it. Jen, um, you've spent the last two decades working in local broadcast journalism. And I've been thinking long and hard about sort of the first question I should put to you. Um, and what I'd like to know, to, first of all, is what does two decades of interviewing experience actually look like? Um, what do you have in your interviewing skill set now that you didn't have when you started out? Well, I guess the two things that I have more of now than I did in 2000 when I was starting out would be courage and experience. Uh, I I estimate that over the last 22 years, I've interviewed 10,000 people. Now, I don't say that I've sat down and done emotional interviews with 10,000 people. It could have been something as simple as, what do you think of that new red light camera on the corner? But more than 10,000 interviews over the last two decades, definitely is a substantial amount. And when I say that I have more courage now, what I mean is that with the benefit of experience, I understand that 
while sometimes it's very hard to ask someone for an interview, especially at a chaotic breaking news scene or if some family has experienced a tragedy, I also know that by asking them for an interview and giving them that opportunity to share their story with a broader community, that sometimes really positive things can come out of that, whether it's opening the door for more support from the community or even allowing there to be social or, or systemic change in the form perhaps of a new law uh, coming after someone's experienced a tragedy. And of course, just experience. Uh, every person's different, every situation's different, but having those decades of experience can certainly help to situate me when I'm when I'm starting an interview with somebody. The question that makes me want to ask is, you know, if you ask a young journalist what they're nervous about when it comes to interviewing it's typically you know a bunch of scenarios that could go wrong you know with the hindsight of 20 years of experience what's the worst thing that can go wrong with an interview well anything that can go wrong probably has gone gone wrong in my experience i always say that i i've learned from my own mistakes i suppose i guess one of the worst things that could happen would be if someone were to just lie to you either misrepresent who they are or what they saw and so that's why, as journalists, we always try to get multiple sources on things to try to prevent something like that from happening. And then from a human perspective, which is what I've written a lot about in my book, uh, one of the things that, that could go terribly wrong would be if I were to amplify somebody else's pain and, and someone who's experienced a family tragedy, if I were to if I or, or any other journalist were to inadvertently um, make them feel worse or make the situation worse for them, a situation that was already bad. So I guess the natural question there is, you know, the first one I think is easily remedied by having a strong sub-editing team, a strong team around you. But when it comes to amplifying the pain or trauma of, a, of an interviewee, what can you do to mitigate that risk and, and prevent that from happening? Well, in the first place, I think you can try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I'm the oldest of six kids, and growing up, my parents would have a sort of mantra that they would tell us often that was treat other people the way you want to be treated. And I, I really still go out into the world and out into my job with that mindset that the people who I'm talking to have been through a lot. And, and before I ask them to start answering my questions, I might start with something like, are you okay? Do you need a minute? Before we start asking questions about the news story, do you just need to take a beat for yourself? And that has been very helpful over the years, just in terms of interacting with people and treating people as, as more than a job, more than an interview, just another human being. Look, the people I talk to, they're not celebrities. They didn't ask to be in the spotlight. They were thrust there most of the time due to circumstances beyond their control. And us as journalists, it's, it's an interesting position we're in, right? I mean, we're not the police. We can't arrest the person who did this to them. We, we're not attorneys. We can't prosecute the person. We're not faith leaders, so we're not offering spiritual advice, but we're there to share people's stories with the broader community and to write what's been said before called the first rough draft of history. Hmm. Do you think sometimes we build it up in our heads, like the stakes of an interview? Because, I mean, it's it's stories come and go and they, and there's this fade effect as well in journalism. You know, what I'm trying to ask is, is often we build up an interview. Um, you know, it, it is part of the solution to overcoming some of those nerves just to realise it's it's a moment in time and, and, and you know, people will 
ultimately it will pass. Yes, I, I think it's possible we build up the interview, though, in researching my book, which goes back to 10 stories that I've covered over the last several decades to revisit the people and reconnect with the people I interviewed on them. I was astonished at how many people remembered the interviews we did, despite the fact that they may have only lasted 10 or 15 minutes. In one case, in the middle of a family, accepting the fact that their entire home had been destroyed in a hurricane. Now, I would have thought prior to researching my book that that I would have been sort of lost in the chaos and the tumult of that day and that they wouldn't remember me. And it was it was really surprising when I started calling people that they remembered the interview too. So I do put a lot of stock in our position as journalists and really the privilege of telling other people's stories because I, I do think that we make an impression on people because we are there during those days that people remember forever. That speaks to very interesting point that it might be a story to us it's actually their life situation it's so much bigger for them than it is for us and therefore what they're trusting with us is very precious in and we should treat it with care really that's exactly what i mean and i'm so glad you picked up on that 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 we have to recognize as journalists you're right that you know we may cover a car accident one day and a natural disaster the next and someone with a serious medical crisis the day after that and, and for us, every day, the news cycle's relentless and we're starting a new story, but we are walking into somebody's life who's dealing with something very serious. And, and the responsibility, in my estimation, is huge in terms of getting it right. The reverse is probably true as well, that if you do a disservice to a story that lives long in the memory as well, and people can hold on to that in a negative sense as well. That's absolutely correct. And and I oftentimes say when people are having what amounts to the worst day of their life, that I'm always surprised at how many people still invite us journalists in to talk to us about it. And part of what I discovered in writing the book and just doing this job for so many years is that the people who don't invite us in, it's not as though we're not doing the story. The story is still going on the news. And the people we wind up speaking to instead as an alternative sometimes don't tell the most accurate picture of the events, don't provide the photo that the family wanted to be used. And so inadvertently, we may put together a story that is less accurate or just less contextualized than it would be had we spoken with the family. And I think there is some sense among people, even when they are going through these tough times, that they're creating a legacy for their person. And, and as I said, they are part of this first rough draft of history and they want us to get it right. You know, thinking about more delicate stories, is there one that stands out to you that you're particularly proud of, of the way that you handled it? Yes, uh, I would point to a story that I tell in chapter six of my book. Uh, people may recall that on Halloween, on October 31st, 2017, there was a terror attack in lower Manhattan uh, someone who had pledged his allegiance to ISIS, uh, rented a truck from Home Depot and drove it intentionally onto a pedestrian biker's path in lower Manhattan, really in, in the shadow of where the Twin Towers once stood. And a number of tourists who were out bike riding were killed. Dozens of people were injured. And one young man named Darren Drake who was just on a break from work at a financial firm in lower Manhattan. He was riding his bike for exercise. He was killed. 
And Darren lived with his parents in New Jersey. And so less than 24 hours after their only child was killed, I had to go and knock on the Drake parents' door and introduce myself a complete stranger and ask them to welcome me into their lives during this excruciating time. So you can imagine why I always consider that, that ask to be the hardest part of the job. But I suppose what I'm proud of about the story, as tragic as it was and, and still is to this day, I interviewed Jimmy Drake and, and I think I treated him with a lot of care and respect. But it was so soon after everything happened that there was no other family there. There were no other journalists there. I was the first person to get there. And despite the fact that my photographer and I had everything we needed to do our news story that evening, we sat with Jimmy Drake for another hour, cameras off, just talking to him and being there for him. And I felt that in that moment, we had done our job as journalists and we had gotten an accurate story. But in that moment, we were we were people, we were other human beings. We were there more as a support network for him. And, and then when the next TV crew eventually showed up, we bid him farewell and, and that was it. But I think that example is one where we can step outside of our roles as journalists and, and just be another member of the community, someone who's willing to, to help another person. And the Drakes did participate in my book. And, and recently Darren's mother gave me what I'm sure will be the best review I'll ever get on the book. And she said, when we were reading the chapter about Darren, it was like he was sitting back in the room with us again. And she said, thank you for not letting my son be another statistic. Amazing. Were you nervous? Yes. You mean knocking on their door and, and making that ask on that day? Mm, 100%, yeah. It, it's the hardest part of the job. It takes me so far outside my own comfort zone. I, I, I oftentimes, true confessions here, but I, I really wish oftentimes that the family won't answer the door so that I can just leave because I, I have obviously... Um, People over the years have said no or said no very forcefully or some other words strung onto that at the end and, and slammed the door. And I, I understand that and I accept that if they don't want to speak with us. But um, as I said, the, the story we share with the community is undeniably better if the family participates, but actually making that ask and asking them to sit with me and take time with me during these really difficult times for the family is is very difficult as a reporter and and unquestionably the hardest part of the job. What I like about that response, I think as young journalists especially, you, you fear rejection and you fear the door being slammed on your face and the expletives being thrown at you. But from what you've just said, it's really not the end of the world. It's, as you know, um, you accept that decision, you move on if that's what they choose to do. And that's certainly their right. And and if they say no, then then that's it. That I don't I don't continue to ring the doorbell and and harass them. But yes, the the whole notion of of rejection generally, whether it's rejection from an interview or rejection from a job, uh, which I've certainly gone through. Uh, I I think that at a certain point we need to get again get comfortable in that feeling of being uncomfortable. That's that's part of the job and you have to be willing to do that. And and the more that you do it, you you do get used to it. But I'll never get used to walking up to somebody's door 
who's experienced a tragedy and, and knocking on the door and asking for them to spend time with me. No. Is there anything you can do to settle your nerves in a situation like that? I just try to treat them with, with the respect that I would want somebody to treat me with. That's the best I can do. Mm. And at this point after, and, and this is also important for young journalists who are listening, it's harder in the beginning, not only because you have less experience, but because people don't know you yet. So I've been on the news here in New York City for 20 years. So it's not that everybody recognizes me on the street, but there's some level of familiarity when I introduce myself and say who I am, people might say, oh, yes. I." So in some ways, they feel like they already know me, which is very helpful. Well, that's the benefit of experience, isn't it? Having that Correct. cachet, that that time to vouch that you've done this for a length of time, that you you are good at your job, frankly. <laughs> and people, when you're when you're on television and whether you're on somebody's phone or in somebody's living room on the television, they do have the sensation that they know you. Even if they've never met you in person, they they do feel like they know you. Like when you recognize someone in passing, you're like, hang on, are you, you know, person on the billboard or person on the on the TV screen. Yeah, I'm, I'm not on any billboards. I always say I'm not famous. I'm familiar. So <laughs> people will typically think, did I meet you at a party or did we used to work together? There's always that moment of confusion. Mm. You've also done a lot of interviews around, I suppose, spontaneous interviews, emerging events, uh, you know, breaking news as it were. Do you have any favorite examples of um, stories that have broken? You've been there uh, as as the news is breaking and you feel like you've done it well? So once in a while, we get the opportunity to do a major breaking news story that is positive, where nobody's hurt, nothing's destroyed, and everything turns out well for everyone. And that happened back in 2009 when I covered the miracle on the Hudson plane crash, plane landing. Right, right. Uh, it, it was eventually made into a movie with Tom Hanks starring as as Sully, the, the hero pilot. But that day I was working and I'll never forget, I was in the uh, ABC New York newsroom and someone on the assignment desk stood up and it was January, by the way. And, and he said, there's a plane down in the Hudson River. And it was just like out of a movie. A lot of times the movie depictions of a newsroom are not accurate, but this one actually was. And so everybody's running around and we're all scrambling to get out the door and get in the live vans and head over there. And uh, and then initially he said, no, actually, they're they're shooting a movie. Never mind. And so everyone sat down for a minute and then we thought, why would they be shooting a movie in January that involved anything happening in the Hudson River? It didn't make sense logically. So they rushed me out with the crew to the hospital where they were sending the survivors. And just as a quick reminder, this is when uh, the plane's engines both failed and you have a plane uh, full of people and it's above New York City. And the pilot, who was very experienced, decided his only option was to make a water landing in the Hudson River. And miraculously, everybody survived with very minor injuries. And uh, But yeah, he put the plane down in the middle of the Hudson River, which separates New York City from New Jersey. So just interviewing those survivors at the hospital and thinking how many other scenarios there could have been where, where those people would no longer be there at the end of that day and uh that was that will always stand out in my mind as as just being an incredible story and i was so lucky to be working that day and, and just witness that miracle again i think about what a young journalist might feel going to the scene and i guess part of it is 
what do I ask? You know, what, you know, what's the story? How do I organize my thoughts and gather my thoughts to find a story here? What's your process? Well, the, the biggest thing for a young journalist starting out is to listen to the answers. So don't try to list your questions in such an organized way that, that it makes it hard for you to actually listen to what someone's saying to you. Because I think sometimes when you go in and you have too many set questions, it means that in some ways you've already decided what the person's going to say to you. And it's good to go into an, an interview with an open mind and, and really open ears. Listen to what people are saying, because I find that the best questions are follow-up questions, or you pick up on a thread of something that somebody told you. But certainly on a story, I mean, using the example we just talked about with the miracle on the Hudson, in that case, it, it was all still so fresh and so new. And so a lot of times when I'm at a breaking news scene, I may just start with a few questions like, tell me what that was like. Can you describe the moment that you realized the plane was going to land in the Hudson River? Um, or I'll say even something like, well, we weren't there when it happened. So can you try to tell us what did it sound like? What did it look like? What did it smell like? And when you start prompting people in that way, sometimes you get a much more descriptive, vivid account of what happened as opposed to asking someone, well, was it frightening? Yes. That's a yes or no question. But something more open-ended tends to elicit a better response. I like the sensory angle and getting them to describe the senses that they went through. That's really clever. How does the reverse happen where they might shut down and then not speak to you? Does that happen at all? Sure, that can happen. Everybody's different and people respond differently. Some people see the TV camera and sort of freeze up. Some people see the TV camera and say, no, I don't want to talk to you, but then they'll be happy to talk to the newspaper or radio reporter. That, that's just human nature. Not everyone's going to respond well. If someone does seem that, that they're reticent or, or nervous about speaking with me, sometimes I'll ask something very basic, something like, what do you do for work? Or what, for example, getting back to the plane, what, what were you doing on the plane when you realized there was a problem? Were you reading a book? Were you watching a movie? Something to, to sort of get the person comfortable just with speaking with me. And, and then any sort of biographical question, where do you live? How old are you? Things, I would guess I'd call them a warm-up question. Mm -hmm. And that, that does tend to help. And, and the other thing I found over the years that helps is to share a little something about myself. I always in introduce myself by name, my photographer by name. I may share some details about my family or where I grew up, just, just to get someone to feel like it's more of a conversation and that they're less in the spotlight. I guess the big fear is running out of things to say and being in that moment where you're like, oh, what do I ask next? And, oh, you know, do you, have, have you found a way to overcome that at all? I don't usually run out of things to say. <laughs> I'm a bit of an extrovert. <laughs> maybe, maybe not these days, but, you know. But, uh, just joking. But the... Well, I would I would say I've always had the the privilege of working with a photographer. Mm -hmm. And at the end of every interview, or to your point, if I run out of things to say, I turn to the photographer who's listening to the interview also and, and shooting it on video. And I'll say, do you have any questions? Is there anything you're wondering about? And just like the photographer will ask me when when they're done shooting the story, are there any other shots you want me to get? Any other video we need? And so my advice for, for anyone who's working as part of a team in that way is really to, 
to take advantage of the fact that you are working as a team and that people bring different things to the stories and and to really capitalize on the fact that that you're working with someone else and and see what they want to know and and perhaps you've forgotten something and the other question i'll oftentimes end with is is there anything that you wanted to tell me that i didn't ask you Mm. yeah that's good and that does tend to elicit an interesting response but people have been working in journalism for a while will probably uh relate to this last thing i'm going to say which is as soon as the camera goes off and I say, thank you so much, I, I really appreciate your time, That that then they'll share this like wonderful oh. moment with me as soon as the camera's off. And sometimes I'll say, uh, can you repeat that for me again? I'd really like to get that on camera. But that happens a lot. It's a, it's a funny thing. Always ask, right? Yes, always. It can be awkward to raise that point, can't it? Oh, can I get you to go back and try and go back over that point but yeah don't let that moment pass um i guess would be one one takeaway um you you said something really interesting about um sort of active listening when somebody's detailing their answer you're not just waiting to queue up your next question you've got to have you know the magic it really is in the follow-up um what's your process there because i mean sometimes they'll start reeling off an answer and they'll say like two or three really interesting things and you've kind of got to cling on to all these different interesting points you've got to kind of formulate that then into a follow-up how do you weigh that up either on my reporter notebook or on my phone i will typically list some bullet points especially if it's a story in which i need to confirm some details whether it's a photo a location a name if there's anything for accuracy that i need to ask about i will list that so that i it doesn't get forgotten but after that I, I do try to listen very carefully and and also, as I said, not go into something with a fixed idea about what happened, to be open to, oh, maybe I maybe my initial impression of what happened here is wrong and and to not be asking them to correct my version of the events, but actually be open to the possibility that the information we got, for example, from the police or the fire scanner is inaccurate and that this person who was the witness to the event actually knows what went on. And so I can't say enough about truly listening to what people are saying and perhaps asking clarifying questions to make sure that that you've heard it correctly, too. Mm. Yeah, or, or you've interpreted it or can summarize it in a, in a way that holds true to what they have seen or witnessed. Right. And the other thing that I try to do is to get people's contact information, typically a cell phone number. And I would recommend doing that because when somebody walks away and you haven't gotten their cell phone number and then you have a follow up question or somebody else contradicts what they said, it's very helpful to be able to go back to the source and check your information to put together a story that has that 360 view. But you can't do that if you haven't taken down their number we spoke about a couple of highlights today from your career are there any mistakes that you'd be open talking about and and how you've learned from those well i've made many mistakes over my career and i think anyone who's being honest with themselves would would say the same and that's how we learn and we try to mitigate the risk obviously by by working with other people and and by being ethical about the way we cover news uh the last chapter of my book does go into a story, and I'll, I'll summarize it for you. I was a graduate student at Columbia Journalism School, 
And for my project, in order to get the master's degree, I made a documentary about mandatory minimum sentencing for first-time nonviolent drug offenders. Right. And my they, they were called the Rockefeller Drug Laws at the time in New York. They've since been overturned. So my documentary partners and I went to a maximum security men's prison about an hour north of New York City, and we interviewed two men who we had been writing about. The prison uh, administration did not let us bring a camera in. So we went in as, as regular visitors. But because we were making a documentary, we needed video of the prison. And I would note we were 22 years old. We were graduate students at the time. So we had the visit. We spoke with the men that we had been writing about. Uh, we were able to, to get some notes and, and really some more perspective on the documentary we were making, but we needed the video of the prison. So we drove out of the prison parking lot, just went to a little side street and started getting video of the prison. Well, we were promptly pulled over by the police who, who thought that perhaps we were getting video of the prison in order to put together some sort of breakout right. for the two men. And so we were brought back into the prison, questioned. We had to call our graduate school advisors. But the real problem and, and the real consequence of this was not borne by me or my documentary partner. It was borne by the two men inside the prison who had cell searches done, uh, had their cells turned upside down because the guards thought maybe we had given them some contraband. And, and I remember... One of the men wrote to me about it, a handwritten note that I still have to this day. And every time I read it, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach because I thought, how could I have made the situation even worse for him? And we didn't know what we were doing. We just wanted some video of the prison. We didn't realize that our actions would ricochet back on them. And I think about it a lot. And and I, you know, I've certainly apologized to to Chris, who's who's interviewed for the book and who's really had an incredible life after he was released from prison, but yeah, that, that was an example of, of just a naive mistake that, that had real consequences for somebody. I think the moral of that story quite interestingly is that, you know, our mistakes do have real world impacts. Um, what, what would you do differently? I think I would have read the rules about not photographing the prison from outside, mm -hmm. uh, and, and just not have done that right? because that was the mistake. We, we just didn't realize how that would be interpreted. We viewed it as, oh, we just need some video to cover the documentary. And they viewed it as you're planning an escape. Is there someone else you could have asked for a second opinion on in that situation, got some guidance, something like that? And they probably would have told you exactly what you just said. Yes, probably our graduate student school advisors. Uh, but thinking back to my 22-year-old self, uh, we probably thought, that we had everything under control. Thank you for sharing that. And that's that's useful um, tips for anyone else, maybe in a similar situation. Um, if they think you've got it under control, maybe a second opinion isn't the worst idea just to make sure. Absolutely. And, and just being cognizant of the way that your actions could reflect on somebody else. And I, I don't think I was conscientious enough about that in the moment. Let me end with a couple of quick fire questions for you, Jen. Um, What's the best advice that you've received um, when it comes to interviewing? To listen to people and and to put, try to put yourself in other people's shoes and think about how you might want to be treated on, on some of the stories that we're covering. Mm. You said you've gained a lot of um, courage over the last 20 years. 
what's the best way to build your courage uh, as a journalist? To step outside your comfort zone. I, I subscribe to the whole growth mindset philosophy, uh, which says you're always supposed to be challenging yourself. And, and I feel that sometimes writing this book, I'm a first time author, it really feels like I'm back in the year 2000, sending out VHS resume tapes and waiting for any news director to call me back to offer me a job. And I think putting yourself in that zone of discomfort where you might face rejection is a really good way to grow as a reporter and a good way to grow as a person. And so I always say, if somebody's not telling me no, then I'm not challenging myself enough. Or asking the right questions, perhaps. Um, finally, I mean, one one thing I think happens to all of us, um, especially early on in our careers, is we come out of an interview and we, we're like, you listen to the interview back, you think, God, I wish I asked that. And you're kicking yourself because, you know, you think, oh, what a missed opportunity. Does that feeling ever go away? No. And I think if you feel that way, then you have a high standard for yourself. So actually, I think that's a good feeling. I know that feeling. I still get it. And yes, occasionally in hindsight, we'll think, oh, I wish I could have thought that in the moment. But again, any sort of self-reflection like that as a journalist means that you're holding yourself to a high standard and you'll get the question right the next time, or maybe you won't. But as long as you're thinking always about how to improve your work and better yourself, then you're in a good place. Jen, thank, thanks so much for all of your insights today and jumping on the podcast. This was a real blast. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for, for your interest and the time. Tons of useful tips for any range of interview situations, but the one real takeaway for me is to not kick yourself for missed questions. This is something I would often do when I first started out with these podcast interviews, actually, and to this day it can still rear its head. But, as Jen says, it's a teachable moment, a sign that you hold yourself to high standards and a prompt to put it right next time. I suppose you can actively work on this as well by asking your colleagues or an editor what questions you missed out. And on that note, I'd love to know what you took away from this episode and if there was anything I didn't ask that you'd like to know the answer to. You can tweet me at JPG Journalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at Journalism News with your thoughts. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.